You're listening to Radio Free Nashville, 107.1 and 103.7 FM LP, and streaming live at RadioFreeNashville.org. Welcome to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour. I'm Jim Walgamuth. I'm here with Harvey Bennett and Tom Gross via Zoom as today we will debate, yes, debate, police and policing after Harvey has an interview with an organizer on the streets of Charleston, South Carolina, who's trying to keep the peace between BLM supporters and Confederate memorialists. Yes, the organizer is with BLM. So I wonder where the police were. Oh, that's another story. But as always, Tom Harvey and I are veterans and we're members of Veterans for Peace, which is an international organization of military veterans and allies whose collective efforts are to build a culture of peace by using our experiences and lifting our voices for the causes of peace, humanity, equality, and justice. Our network is comprised of over 140 chapters worldwide. Our radio show is on stations across the country. You can get a copy of the show by just going to our Facebook page. Just search Veterans for Peace Chapter 089. So the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour and Radio Free Nashville are supported in part by the Green Party of Tennessee, bringing some common sense into the bipolar world of American politics. Go to greenpartyattennessee.org. Happenings. I'm sure wherever you are, there are Zoom presentations and activities that you can do online. There are also probably marches and rallies. But remember, please wear a mask and be peaceful. Do not give the Trumpists any reason to get ugly because you will be to blame, no matter what they do. Here in Nashville, we are trying to put pressure on the government, whatever, to remove the bust of Nathan Bedford Forrest. Not a big deal. Get the slave trader out of the Capitol building. Get the war criminal out of the Capitol building. But no person or entity is taking responsibility for the removal of it. They are all passing it from one person or one organization to the next. So please make your voice heard. Google Bury the Bus, B-U-R-Y the Bust, to get more information on how you can send a, just a quick email to our historical commission. Let's put pressure on somebody. So with that, on with the show. So Harvey, tell us about your interview. Tell, tell us about how, what, what was it? You went down to Charles's this morning? Yeah, I went down there. Every Sunday morning, they're having these rallies at this down on the South Battery right there uh, by all the uh, cannons and all that stuff there in the park and next to all these mansions and all that crap and <clears throat> right by the water. There's a big monument there called uh, the uh, in memory of the uh, Confederate defenders of Charleston. Oh, that's the one you were talking about last week. Yeah. So All right. uh, the well, Confederate, they've been doing a Confederate thing there for, for several years, every Sunday where they uh, had their Confederate flags and they would try to engage people like tourists who would walk by and tell them, you know, here's the truth about the, you know, Confederacy. It had nothing to do with slavery. It was about tariffs or some bullshit, you know, <clears throat> just trying. <laughs> so uh, Black Lives Matter has been trying to uh, provide a, an alternative <laughs> narrative. So, so who's... They, they demanded uh, permits because these people had a permit every damn Sunday. So uh, who's, said, oh, who's Jason Jones? Chance, you know, needs a chance to do this. So now the Black Lives Matter alternates it with them. And on the on the days when Black Lives Matter doesn't have a permit to be at the at the monument, they gather across the street, right by the uh, boardwalk there, <clears throat> and that's where they were today. And there must have been close to forty uh, Black Lives Matter uh, <clears throat> uh, folks there with their signs and all that. Elijah was among them. In fact, he's kind of a leader. He <clears throat> does a lot on the bullhorn and all that stuff. That's a lot of chance. <clears throat> he got a uh, Captain America shield a couple last year for his birthday or something. He loves that stuff. And he redecorated it 
now it's a no justice, no peace shield. It's pretty cool. Nice. So who's um, Jason Jones? Jason Jones is, a, is a, one of the leaders there of the uh, protest movement. Uh, there are several different kind of groups that have sprung up. It's all kind of been since George Floyd, really. Mm -hmm. uh, well, let's listen so, to the interview. Let's see if yeah, we can let's get see it. what he had to say. Okay, so uh, I'm here with uh, in Charleston at the Battery. Uh, we're at a counter demonstration uh, with Black Lives Matter and other uh, black movements uh, opposing a uh, Confederate rally at the uh, monument to the uh, Confederate defenders of Charleston. And, and so anyway, uh, one of the leaders uh, of the various movements uh, is Jason, what's your last name? Jones. Jason Jones. So I wanted to uh, try to uh, share uh, with everybody uh, what Jason uh, view of things is here here, and uh, what he sees as uh, strategies going forward. So Jason, can you give me a little history of your uh, involvement with the movement? I mean, on the history side, I started just after uh, the, just after the George Floyd movement started here in Charleston. Um, I was out here for the original protest for George Floyd. I didn't stay late, so I did not take privilege to any of the distress that happened downtown. But um, after that, I developed a group called Change is Coming. Um, with a couple other people and we did the first peaceful march in the Charleston area in Somerville with a group of 400 people. Um, since then I've been working on building a collective. Um, now we have the United Front which is uh, Stand as One, the Coalition, uh, Wayland Hart Team, uh, Phoenix Project, and Generation Z, I'm trying to think, in the Coalition and there's a few other various groups that are part of this. Um, that's it for history side. Okay. So, <clears throat> so it looks like, uh, you know, tensions are increasing uh, with the uh, Jacob Blake and all that and uh, all these other horrible things that are happening. So there's a big crowd out here today. Uh, it seems like to be a lot of different uh, messages and a lot of shouting back and forth. Do you have any input on that? What do you think of that? Um, there's a generational change here, and there's a huge generational gap from the elders to the, the new movements today. Yeah. Um, the message is always the same. We're fighting for justice for, you know, the fallen that have had their lives taken at the hands of police, um, unjust killings. And then we're also fighting for equality, social, economic equality. And I mean, basic rights for black, brown, and indifferent people. Um, it's a lot different of a look this day, this era, with black, white, Hispanic, you know, Asian. It doesn't really matter who you are. If you're standing with this movement, you're standing because you're standing for justice. Yeah, well, I think you're right there. I think uh, the, the time when people can just sit on the fence and uh, uh, be neutral is kind of come and gone. So. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, you know, it, it takes a little bit of energy to keep the crowds that we do bring out in line and discipline. And discipline is definitely something that we're, we're teaching and a lot of our movers are, are learning on the fly. Um, a lot of them never had to, move, to go through movements like this. And then what they see from the media and the news is pure anarchy. That's all they're televising, really. So we have to teach them the other side of that. And uh, that's what makes the news, you know, so what about your uh, relationships with the police? Have you had any uh, ability to sit down and air grievances or concerns? Yeah, we um, actually have had several meetings with the police department here in Charleston and the mayor. Um, we're just pushing for the city to fully agree with us. They agree with us to an extent, but the officers take their directives from the top up and there's no filter on those directives 90% of the time. So officers here aren't allowed to make judgment calls as they should be as a peace officer on the street um we see that i've i've been exposing that we've been exploiting that as well and that's part of the the strategical side of the movement so what is the the uh have you talked to charleston and north charleston both and and um, what is the leadership they're committing to um leadership in charleston is working heavily to try to find a a peaceful resolve and media into this. 
Um, there's a lot of bureaucracy, red tape with this, um, with no hate crime, or excuse me, the Heritage Act in place and then the No Hate Crime Act. You know, it, it makes it harder for them to straddle those lines of First Amendment rights versus, you know, a, a show or display of hate, which what we're fighting out here. Yeah. Um, North Charleston, I haven't had much communication with. We're actually getting ready to dive in there soon. Yeah. Well, I know Charleston had a... Uh finally agreed to do a uh, racial bias audit of the police department. Uh, that was uh, Charleston Area Justice Ministry that pushed for that, and they actually did that. And they're under some uh, uh, <coughs> requirements to, to implement changes. Do you know anything about what those changes are supposed to be? Um, in Charleston, they have started working on some of those changes. Um, I know that they've implemented the um, Community Review Board. Um, we've actually got a person placed on that board directly from our movements. Um, I'm not going to put his name out there, but he was in the movements with us early. Um, aside from that, there's still a lot of, um, of haze as, as far as how they're going to actually move towards this progressive reform that they're talking about. And we're still waiting to see what the outcomes of that's going to be. There, there hasn't been a lot of um, feedback from the city yet. They're still digging in and diagnosing what they found. And the findings are tremendous. I mean, if you have time to look through it and read it, I would definitely recommend reading the findings from the audit. Where could we uh, send people to, to to read that report? Um, I, you can find it through the Charleston City webpage. I don't know the exact uh, the pathway for it. Okay. I've got it saved on my computer at home because I've been digging through it myself. But I can get that pathway. I'll get it back um, to you. Uh, yeah, that would be great because... Uh our show is based out of Nashville, and Nashville has been working to get a, a community oversight board. They finally got one, but it uh, basically has no enforcement mechanisms. It's pretty toothless, and, and uh, it, the legislature is doing all they can to water it down. So I think the independent audit uh, approach might be one they, they should consider. So uh, I think the more... Uh, more different communities can share what they've learned the the better yeah definitely um that toothless feel for the the community uh review boards that is the feeling in north charleston right now they implemented their community review board in the north charleston city limits mm -hmm. um i want to say about three years ago it was after walter scott um and theirs were appointed people by the city Luckily, here in Charleston, there was a capability to put some voice and influence into the councilmen as far as who we wanted on this on this boards, mm -hmm. and it makes a difference. So, yeah, definitely want to regain the strength of those community yeah. review boards. Well, I know uh, Elijah and uh, my wife and I have been to a couple of the North Charleston council meetings, and they finally, under a lot of pressure, agreed to uh, put out uh, proposals to uh, independent Audit, auditing uh, providers to, to try to get a racial bias audit done there. So that remains to be seen how that's going to go and how much community uh, oversight and input uh, will be included in that. Yeah, um, I'd be interested to see how that turns out as well. I don't have a lot of faith in the mayor, so I'm going to yeah. leave it there. Yeah. yeah, what we saw was pretty outrageous there. Uh, <clears throat> but in any case, I think we just have to keep keep up the fight. So <clears throat> I'm hoping nobody gets arrested today. <laughs> last night wasn't so good. Yeah, no. Were you there last night? Um, yes, I was out there last night, and it was not a good movement. Um, I had my inhibitions about it before we ever stepped out. I just went out to keep the peace and to make sure that nobody got hurt or, you know, in trouble and could get home safely. We still lost a few out of that move last night. Yeah, it sounded like uh, the police are ratcheting up their uh, enforcement in ridiculous proportions here, tackling people from behind and all this crazy stuff. Yeah, um, the, the police response was definitely overblown, and a lot of what was shown out of that was actually instigated by the police. So, yeah. And it's not the police necessarily. Like, um, I'd throw more of that towards the sheriff's department for um, Charleston County Sheriffs. Yeah. Uh, we all know that the sheriff uh, is up for a re-election this year, and he's trying to play this line of um, keeper of justice or bringer of justice following in behind Donald Trump's uh, strong stance for 
What's the word I'm looking for it's here? It's not justice. It's not justice. No. Um, I can't even think of what the term that Trump used was, but that's right yeah. where he's falling in. Seems like law and order are the magic word. Law and order. Thank you, sir. And now the, the way the movement is being portrayed is mob rule, right? Uh, I've got a problem. Okay, thank you. Uh, Jason had to uh, take a break and uh, cool things down. It was getting pretty heated between the cops and uh, some of the Black Lives Matter protesters here. There must be at least 40 or 50 uh, Black Lives Matter protesters here. And uh, over by the Confederate monument, there might be a dozen uh, folks with uh, Confederate flags and you name it. So uh, it's a dynamic, very fluid situation here. We're just hoping it doesn't get out of control. Uh, anyway, uh, that's what's going on in Charleston. You know, they're just taking advantage of these crowds and all this back and forth and you know, hurling insults and stuff. And they're videoing the Black Lives Matter guys and then they're putting, you know, editing it out to make them look as bad as possible and putting it on Facebook, you know. <clears throat> All right. Uh, so they're playing right into their hands doing that. And, and Jason's really trying to work on them to tone down that kind of just uh, insults and, and keep it more focused on the message, you know. The Black okay, Lives Matter so message. It, it's, it's, the, it's the white supremacists that are interviewing the put on Facebook? No, the, the white farmers are videoing the uh, the Black Lives Matter people who are shouting and, you know, doing all this stuff and then putting that on Facebook to make it look like they're yeah. a mob, you know, whatever. Great. So, so, all right. Well, very good. That was uh, a good interview, Harvey. Well, yeah, he's an interesting guy, but none of them have much experience. I was talking to this, uh, one of the women there who's uh, come to a lot of it. She seems pretty uh, clear-headed about things. And I was telling her about the Nashville movement and, and uh, how much training and discipline it took, you know, <clears throat> to really uh, make that work. Right. And, uh, where people all understood their role. They all understood... Uh, <clears throat> The message that they needed to stick to. And, yeah, but that takes I think time. It's, time, it's, it's time to look at the nonviolent aspects and the non-confrontational one-on-one stuff. You, you, if you get engaged in that, like you say, to be manipulated with all the social media stuff. Right. Yeah, and it, I don't think that's a useful focus right now. But I, you know, I I don't don't feel like it's legitimate for me to tell them how to do it, but uh, I'm hopeful that people yeah. like Jason and others who are a little more mature and, and seasoned can help kind of push them away from that and, and have Well, why don't, they, why don't they just get on YouTube and look at the, the sit-down people and the people who don't react to everything? Yeah. I mean, there's got to be hours and hours of tape of these people and how to behave. <laughs> yeah. The freedom writers, you know. Well, you, you know, in some ways, the civil rights movement has kind of co-opted a lot of that. So, right, not like you can do sit-ins at the lunch counter anymore. <laughs> I know, but you could, you could, um, you could refer them to uh, all the training that yeah. I talked that about James Lawson and, and yeah. C.T. Vivian, and, so, and I've I've, t I've sent some of those interviews to Elijah, but he is just raw emotion. 
right now. Yeah. He is so angry. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, he's 17 years old. And when his mom tries to talk yeah. to him about it, he just starts crying and says, you don't know. You don't understand. You know? Right. Uh, yeah. Well, that's that's what I'm going through, and he's right. <laughs> I mean, we don't. No, you we don't. Yeah. But you know, he can also, if if you if you could, just share with him what was productive in Nashville. Yeah. And how they integrated, how the young people integrated Nashville under. Yeah. The, tutelage of James Lawson and yeah. under the actions of Diane Nash and John Lewis. Sure. And, you know, and he, you know, it might take a half hour. Yeah. But, but, but this issue might be tougher because, um, you know, their, their issue of the integration and uh, that kind of thing, in some ways, uh, they weren't having to, I mean, they weren't really addressing policing per se yeah. this is you know th this uh, this is something where they are just head to head against the police and that's pretty that's hard to win that battle right yeah <coughs> well speaking yeah. of police tom had no. a couple of clips for <clears throat> about the police okay yeah the you know the first one with tom divine he's i think he's one of the founders of GAP, which is the Government Accountability Project, but that's right up the alley of what we're talking about. He tries to facilitate legislation that allows more accountability, both nationally and locally. Like, for example, why we have an incident with the police and it takes us two weeks to find out who the individuals are who were in the incident. Right. I mean, it's just crazy. So let's listen to that. Of course, most law enforcement violence occurs outside of public view, beyond scrutiny or accountability. Often the only witnesses to police misconduct are the victims of it, and of course the other cops on the scene. But history shows that rarely, very rarely, do cops inform on one another, partly because of the omerta-like code known as the blue wall of silence, and partly out of fear of retaliation from their colleagues. Which is why, says Tom Devine of the Government Accountability Project, police reforms are all but useless without protection for those courageous and honorable enough to blow the whistle. He explains that some good legislation has already been proposed. There's more liability, there's controls for accurate records, there's controls on transfer of military equipment, more restrictions on no-knock warrants. So solid legislation, at least in the House of Representatives, the, the Senate so far is the Republicans there proposed more baby steps. Many civil rights advocates have criticized the proposals as insufficient because the sanctions are too weak. But from your perspective, the efficacy of the reforms themselves is almost beside the point because even the harshest penalties for, say, chokeholds will prove nearly impossible to enforce. Absolutely. Murder and brutality by the police have always been crimes. Uh, the Achilles heel has been enforcement. And our challenge isn't to outlaw police brutality, it's to prove it. And you just can't always depend on a smartphone. We're going to have to rely on honest cops who can testify truthfully without fear. Otherwise, those rights on paper and controls are going to be like a mirage. Now, all whistleblowers are at risk of ostracism, active or passive on-the-job retaliation. But do you think cops have it the worst? Why? Well, I think it's because the law enforcement world, uh, the state and local police forces, they're the only major sector of our society that doesn't have independent whistleblower protection for people who want to challenge abuses of power and the, the consequences of it uh, are very, very severe. Police officers who challenge the blue wall of silence certainly engage in professional suicide, but they risk losing their lives too. They're abandoned during stakeouts or shootouts. That's the facts of life for a lot of honest cops. And in fact, it, it's funny that uh, the police officers who hit up on the whistle, they caught committing the truth 
because they're the ones who are treated like they committed a crime. What does need to happen before cops can feel safe to come forward? Well, I think the first thing is they have to have some legal rights. But you know, getting legal rights is just the first step in a, a long process towards change. And these are deeply ingrained traditions of police brutality. So we also going to need solidarity from the public. We're hoping a government accountability project where I work, that the campaign to get legal rights will help to develop that solidarity. You know, I won't say it's just a few bad apples, but there's a, a significant majority of law enforcement officers, in my experience, who did this because they wanted to protect the public, not because they wanted to protect brutal cops. We're hoping that in the process of getting rights for law enforcement officers, we'll develop that solidarity so they can actually start defending the public instead of being afraid to. Uh, but the very revolution that has given us occasion to have this conversation and is the reason for the legislation in Congress suggests that solidarity is going to be pretty hard to come by. If you're an activist demanding for police agencies to be dismantled, protecting the good apples is kind of weak tea, isn't it? I mean, is your advocacy even resonating uh, with the Black Lives Matter movement? I'm not sure too many of the activists have been uh, advocating anarchy. Uh, they're defunding calls to take away responsibilities from the police that they have no business working on in the first place, uh, and to reduce excess funding and funding that's unnecessary, such as military equipment and, and that sort of thing. You know, what we need is both. We need to have better controls on the police, and the law enforcement whistleblowers are all going to be supportive of that. Too many police forces have become bureaucracies, institutions whose primary purpose is their own self-interest instead of their stated mission. And the whistleblowers are the ones who are trying to keep them honest, get their feet to the fire, and, and who actually are trying to live the mission of protecting the public. I want to ask you one more question. The protection that you envision begins with legislation that includes explicit protection for police whistleblowers against professional retaliation or worse. But I, I, I want to come back to the blue ball of silence because it is so deeply embedded in police culture and police union culture. Do you really believe that no matter what the law provides that this big, not very beautiful wall can ever be torn down? Well, it's, it's a big challenge, but uh, I've seen a lot of cultural revolutions in the last <laughs> work working with whistleblowers. Uh, when I first started in 1979, whistleblowers were all viewed as either nuts or traitors. Uh, occasionally, profiles encouraged. That was the rare exception. Now, whistleblowers are on a, a, a pedestal uh, of public support. We passed the last 16 whistleblower laws unanimously because no politician dares to vote against whistleblowers. I think that most people do enter the law enforcement profession, not so they can beat somebody up or not so that they can be corrupt, <clears throat> get corrupted by a corrupt environment. I mean, <clears throat> a cultural revolution within the police forces. I think the blue wall of silence is more enforced by fear uh, and peer pressure than it is by what's really in the hearts and souls of most police officers who, are, who enlist in the service. Tom, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Tom Devine is the legal director of the Government Accountability Project. <clears throat> of course, most law enforcement violence occurs outside of public view, beyond scrutiny or accountability. That's the loop there. Yeah, so, so Tom, you provided that. What's your take? I think he's overly optimistic that- Well, yeah, I figured you would say that, but you know what? If we think we're going to have reform, no matter how left you are about reform, how much defunding is important, you, you have to realize that you're going to have to work with the people who are engaged in policing. So at some point, I think he's absolutely right about changing the police culture. I, I can't believe that 80% of police want to beat people up. I mean, that's just crazy. That's against <clears throat> human nature. So we have to work out uh, a mission 
to accomplish both safety in the community and changing the culture of police. It's a huge job. It may take 20 years, but I think you have to look at some kind of constructive approach that engages all of the elements, including the police union, which are way too protective, if you ask me. Right. Now you're crackling, so we'll um, <laughs> come in again. Hardly, what do you think? I think it's going to be, I don't think that's an avenue that's going to yield much because it's not like uh, we're talking about uh, <clears throat> um, you know, whistleblowers being uh, reassigned or or fired or disciplined. No, that can be killed by the by the, their fellow cops. <laughs> you know, during their tour of duty. Yeah. So well, it have been. Yeah. Have been. And we'll we'll we'll, we'll shortly listen to a clip that Tom provided with an interview with uh with Serpico. But you know, when I'm listening to that guy and I understand your optimism, Tom, when you say it might even take twenty years. Well um Let's see, when was Michael Brown killed? How many years ago was that? Six, eight, ten? Seven years, maybe. Oh, yeah. 10. Yeah. So um, what, what drives me nuts is that this has at least been on the table for seven years already. And Minneapolis went through a whole undertaking of reform this, reform that, reform something else, only to find out that, guess what? All the reforms were taken um, with a huge grain of salt by the people wearing blue. And so it was okay to kill George Floyd. <clears throat> from, from my standpoint- The other approach is like making the cops come from that community. Yeah. Then, then they've got a built in uh, community uh, observer, you know, their neighborhood. They yeah. Shit, their neighbors are going to come get them. <laughs> yeah. the way it ought to be. Well, I, you know, I would say one of the reforms that would make, make a difference is to have cops get out of the cars and you actually walk the neighborhoods. If they're dedicated to protecting the neighborhood, they ought to be engaged in the neighborhood. And, you know, that's, that's a big change in culture if they would do more of that. But, you know, I'm not saying that it's wonderful that it's going to take 20 years to do this. I'm just saying, you know, the civil rights movement has been going on now for decades and decades. And they know it's a long-term struggle. And you get frustrated and angry about it. But uh, you have to find some avenue for change that's, uh, has a high probability of working. You can't just decide, well, everything has to be junk. That's the side I'm on right now. I'm all about saying, all right, we are going to disband the police, just disband the police as it is. And then a, a mayor of a city, along with community leaders within the city, like here in Nashville, get community leaders from this, from people on the COB, people in NOAA, people in Black Lives Matter, people, um, people on the council, all get around and say, okay, what type of policing do we want? And then you start building it again. And, you know, right now, our, our protect and serve only deals with property, only deals mm -hmm. with property. And so, at that point, I think the, the mantra that has to be is, you know what, um, you're going to be, your role is going to be protecting people. That's your role. That's it. And if a business, if a business wants protection, wants protection, then they can either uh, hire their own security guards, which are unarmed, 
or they can pay a special surtax to the police because I I'm just the police are right now um, in my view based on what I'm seeing they're not out there to protect people they're not out you know if they are out there to protect people then those people in Kenosha those police people in Kenosha in their tanks would have stopped that young man and said what are you doing why are you carrying a weapon instead of saying we're glad you're here here's a bottle of water when you when they did that when they did that they the the, the 17 year old is thinking wow they're glad i'm here i've got free reign so well you know i i understand what you're saying and i agree with the goal but the chances of you doing that overnight no can't do it slim and none Right, you can't do it overnight. No, well, not. first of all, the average person, no matter what town you want to talk about, Nashville, Chicago, somewhere in South Carolina, Georgia, they're not going to sign on to disbanding the police. No. It ain't going to happen. And that, that's one of the problems with the campaign now. They better get on this law and order thing and, and change the narrative. Because you have people now, because of you know, the media coverage, thinking twice about who they're going to vote for and who's going to protect them. That whole law and order thing again. Well, I think what you need to do, too, is restructure the police so that, uh, <clears throat> you know, the, the calls that they're, when they dispatch people, there should be only a certain category that uh, allows them to carry arms. Right. You know, if there's a traffic accident and they're going to go, you know, block off a lane of traffic and all that, they, you know, they don't need guns to do that. And uh, well, no, have, I, I don't think I don't they think can have uh, highway the safety, they can have highway safety specialists who, who are dispatched yeah. to that. Not yeah, the police don't need to do that. Yeah. yeah, but that's where they are. That's how they interact, and that's how they end up killing people. Right. Well, uh, you know, part of what he was also saying was about whistleblowers and about the problem with the uh, with a, a a good cop calling out a bad cop, and Tom gave us this the most famous. <laughs> the most famous cop whistleblower is Frank Serpico, who in the late 60s reported widespread corruption and brutality in the New York City Police Department. His complaints led to a New York Times expose, an official commission exploring police corruption, and in 1973, the Al Pacino movie, Serpico. Frank, we wash our own laundry around here. Now, you could be brought up in charges for I this. always thought so, but the reality you is so. Do not wash our own lungs. It just gets dirty. You are in trouble. I don't care if I'm in trouble. I don't care who gets it anymore, including myself. When Serpico was shot in the face during a 1971 drug operation, his fellow officers refused to summon help, and they left him for dead. But he lived, and so does his half-century-long struggle for accountability. All right, I called you a whistleblower, but I, I know you hate that term. Why? To me, the exposing is a very noble act, and the word whistleblowing does not fit that deed. You know, they called me a rat, a cheese eater, that I exposed my buddies. They weren't my buddies. These guys were criminals wearing the police uniform. I didn't rat on them. I exposed their criminal activity. So I prefer the term lamplighter because as a police officer, when I would go into a darkened tenement and turn on the light, the roaches would scurry for the woodwork. And these crooked politicians are nothing more than roaches that scurry for the woodwork when you expose them. But unfortunately, they are becoming more defiant because they have not been brought to justice. Tell me about the blue wall of silence. 49 years after you were left bleeding from a gunshot wound, does the blue wall still exist? 
Oh, absolutely. In my opinion, as strong as the mafia is America, people think, oh, that's the mayor, that's the police commissioner. They have your best interests at heart. And as we can see, that is absolutely not the case. They are self-serving people with huge egos that don't care about morality or justice. You know, they put value on the dollar rather than on human lives. Now, you and the Government Accountability Project's Tom Devine just co-authored a piece in The Hill about whistleblower protection. And Tom was pretty optimistic about the prospects. Are you as optimistic as he is that police will be held in check by changing laws and changing police culture? Well, unfortunately, having been an observer for over 50 years, I can't say I'm that exuberant. Um, starting with the Whistleblower Protection Act is a good step, but again, will it be enforced? So this all remains to be seen. It's the society. We can't just, you know, be pointing to the, the, the cops all the time. The, the cops are us. You know, we talk about Black Lives Matter. So they know what it's all about. It's been going on for not only 50 years, but hundreds of years. You think they would say, hey, you know, maybe we should uh, look into this. Maybe the people have something. No, they have to come up with Little Lives Matter, and they're like kids throwing a tantrum. Rather than doing some soul searching, they would rather dig in their heels and defy the people that are seeking justice. Are we ever going to get the justice that we deserve? You know, this is the 21st century. We're still operating on old draconian thug squad principles about how many people you can lock up instead of how many people can you keep out of jail. As many cops have complained to me, and I quote, I'm nothing more than a tax collector with a gun. A good start would be in having a new police code of ethics you know, somewhat along the lines of the Hippocratic Oath of Physicians. And being a good cop doesn't mean being a thug that goes around breaking heads, as they like to say. It doesn't keep you any less safe to be a good cop. In fact, it'll keep you safer because people will respect the way you respect them. Frank, I want to thank you very much. Well, I want to thank you for this opportunity to give my views. Frank Serpico is a former New York City police detective, and for the last 50 years. And that came from On the Media, uh, along with the first one, which is part of WNYC, and I suspect that's in New York. So. Yep. And see, after listening to that, after listening to that, the that's where that's where I come down. Yeah, I, I you know, there, there are two sides to the story, but you know, at some point, somebody has to figure out how to make things work. That's right. And I think, and that's up to us, exactly. because obviously our elected officials are not invested in that process. So maybe instead of disbanding the police and just shutting them down for a while, you get a police chief and, like Harvey was saying, take all the guns away. And then you say, okay, you're going to patrol. You're going you're gonna to try and keep people safe. You're going to have traffic stops and things like this while you're in a transition period where the community leaders and the, uh, listen to the people as far as what type of policing they actually want. Maybe, maybe that was it. But we've got, you know, in my, in my opinion, um, the police force is one of the systems that is just broken. Or maybe as, as I've heard today in the, in the People's Convention, 
it ain't broken. This is the way it was meant to be. Yeah. Yeah. So. It's well, you know, I I would say also if you're if you're discouraged though, you need to talk to police. Not I've talked to different police in Nashville, and a lot of them don't impress me as being, you know, totally corrupted. Uh, I think they would rather uh, be engaged in a more constructive activity. You know, like Serpico said, they they don't want to be tax collectors with guns. Yeah. Yeah, well, the radio show is probably an inappropriate place for me to talk about my ex-neighbor, so. <laughs> probably. Who was a metro policeman. Yeah, yeah we have uh, on Norris Street, the next door neighbor, and to one side is a cop, <clears throat> not pleasant cop, and then across the street. Uh, the other thing to talk about is how do you recruit police? Who... Who, who is going to recruit the, the future police? And isn't that a process that has to be reorganized? Well, each community ought to have a, an allotted number of people that they can nominate to become police for their community. Yeah. They would have to be interviewed by representatives of the community first. They have to have shown that they're uh, responsible community members and, and uh, are uh, have demonstrated uh, concern for their uh, members of their community. That would be the first. Uh, well, you know, if you remember history, some of that stuff happened. Uh, you know, yeah. the Black Panthers were kind of involved in that. Right. So was uh, Sleva. He had his uh, community policing with yeah. no guns. Yeah. Um, yeah, I wonder what happened. What happened to them? <laughs> the Panthers, they're all either dead or in prison. Yeah. Okay. Or or selling stuff online. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So, well, you know. Jim, do you think you could put together uh, a community police force? Do I think I could come put together a community police yeah. force? Or just uh, on the, in the neighborhood you live in, could you get enough people? to volunteer to be part of a, a community policing project? Well, not volunteer, but policemen are paid. <laughs> so if we would say we could put together these neighborhoods around here, and I've got about um, three or four neighborhoods around here, and probably a thousand houses. And I bet you if we said, Positions available for community policing with starting salary at $50,000, we'd have more than enough applicants. Uh, and they must be residents of the community. Must be residents of the community. But, you know, but we'd be paying. From there, we got into a discussion about the challenges that humanity is facing right now and whether humanity has ever faced as much as we're facing right now compared well, I, I would say it's probably comparable to world war ii for those who lived in europe i mean in the united states we felt the threat but not like they did in europe or asia and now it's the whole world now it's well, the whole world you know <clears throat> we're in the post uh hiroshima world yeah yeah, yeah. i mean i I was trying to think back, and the Civil War was uh, was horrific, especially if you lived in Virginia and Maryland and Tennessee and Georgia and um, eventually South Carolina. Uh, but if you lived in upstate New York or if you lived in New York or upstate Pennsylvania um, or Ohio or Michigan, it was in the news. and. That was it, and life went on. Um, you know, uh, and of course, everybody would have somebody at the war, and so somebody yeah. killed, somebody dying, that would be horrific, and that would be you touched. But you know, we this the this the, the whole country, the whole world, is involved in this mess right now, and of course, it's being 
it's either exacerbating or being exacerbated by all these other challenges we've got. And in, within the country, I mean, the, the, the thing that happened, the thing that, that uh, lit me up this morning was when I see that the Portland city government has, well, they've eliminated the troops and they've kind of told the police, keep, keep, keep calm. But what happens is vans of white supremacists, armed white supremacists come rolling in. Mm. And so, you know, beyond, beyond COVID, we are now looking at that issue. And we're in trouble, guys. What's, what's next? Give me an answer. Well, I, I think the beginning of this is, you know, making sure we have a fairly decent election, at least one where people get to vote. I think until we go through that window, things are up in the air. Yeah. And obviously, you know, from what we were talking about with the police issues and reform and everything, you know, the the job just continues. Uh, you've you've got to continue to be engaged in your community and uh, force accountability on every level. So you got to go back to Dar Jamal, and it's not about the results of the activism. It's about the activism. It's about being involved constantly, <clears throat> not worrying about winning, not worrying about accomplishing, just and not doing it yourself by yourself. Right. Just but just yeah, keep... you know the other thing to keep in mind. Us three are, are retired people. We have the luxury of considering what activism is for us and, and donating time, being active in it. Yeah. There are so many people right now that I'm meeting while I'm doing the census who are, they're worried about whether they're gonna get evicted next week. That's right. They're worried about whether they're ever gonna have a job again. Exactly. They're not worried about the ice melting. No. They're not worried about nuclear war. <laughs> They're worried about their daily life. Right. Yeah. Yeah, they're not going to survive long enough to see the ice melt. Right. And then, and then when their life actually collapses, when they are evicted, when there is no hope of a job, that's when they will take to the streets. That's when they will rebel. Maybe. I don't think they'll have any option. I mean, we 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 know uh, we know about crime. What is the cause of crime? People are good. People don't commit crimes uh, nine out of ten times unless they're desperate. Right. Unless they're desperate, and that's when you're going to have people just desperate. People who are people who don't have an intact network or community <clears throat> you know they they have these jobs like at amazon or something where they don't have time to go to the bathroom much less develop relationships with their co-workers <clears throat> when they're thrown you know just thrown out in the street they might commit crimes they may i mean you know they, they're gonna get in go to the stores and try to steal food for their families i mean how can, how can you expect them not to? Great. And how can you blame them when they do? Right. But uh, in terms of responding in an effective, you know, mass movement, there's no mass movement out there for them to connect to right now other than Black Lives Matter. Yeah. And yeah, that break that racial divide. Yeah. So that's, but we're talking about a few weeks away, Jim. <laughs> this is not some, you know, future, future scenario. That's why I thought with Chomsky that he, he really, he really under, underestimated it because he was saying, we've got to make decisions over the next decade or yeah. two. Yeah, he's not you know? talking about the economic cliff. Yeah. We, we, People are going to feel before anything else. 
for for some of this stuff, we need to make we need to make solid decisions over the next week or two. People need people need immediate yeah immediate relief. Congress is still on vacation. Yeah. Even even if you did get them relief, it was if it's going to be mailed to them, they won't get it. That's right. <laughs> so, I mean, and and then of course, should I bring should I bring this up that when these people that are desperate, that have been left out in the cold, that are looking to try and feed their families or get health care because they've lost their health care um, for their little girl or, or, or little boy or wife or whatever, should I, should I ask, what are they going to look at when, they, when, when it comes time to vote as far as, well, they know Trump is terrible and they know that Biden... What have you shown me, Joe? What have you What have you said? I'm, well, I don't know. Maybe too too uh, deeply feel just too deeply uh, powerless to even bother to vote because they exactly. don't. And that's that's what happens. That's why that's why there are so many non-voters. Yeah, because they've seen that over the years voting. They voted and nothing happened. Nothing helped. No one did anything to improve their lot in life. <clears throat> yeah, so that could you know that could help Biden because a lot of people are going to blame Trump when their bottom falls out. Yeah, <clears throat> and uh, but could also just reduce the turnout. And Trump's crazy base. I can't believe there aren't enough people in that base that are going to lose their jobs and be in the same damn boat as everybody else. Uh, from the numbers I see, even his hardcore base is shrinking. But mm -hmm. uh, he could get more independence with this law and order narrative. Uh, I don't think that's going to be uh, as prominent in their minds when they don't have jobs and they don't have a house to live in and they can't feed their families or get health care. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And well, I mean, I'm, I'm speaking of some people who are probably a little better off who are independent, yeah. right. they yeah. have a job. And so yeah. both, both parties seem to want to go after the white people in the suburbs who feel threatened by uh, black pe the black people downtown and well they're just yeah. watching stuff on tv mm -hmm. Trump's interpreting it for them that's right so all right what are we going to finish up with what song because it's it, we need to leave it here why don't you just dig up a good john prine song okay and give people something to laugh at yeah all right, I'll dig up a good John Prine song. Or what do you got for me? Good taste in our mouth. So in fact, here's John Prine and Iris. I'm gonna get on the old turnpike and I'm gonna ride. I'm gonna leave this town till you decide which one you want the most. Them opera stars on me. Milwaukee, here I come from Nashville, Tennessee. Milwaukee is where we were before we came here. Working in a brewery, making the finest beer. You came to me on payday night and said, let's go to Tennessee. So we drove down to Nashville to the Grand Ole Opry. Yeah, I'm gonna get on the old turnpike and I'm gonna ride. I'm gonna leave this town till you decide which one you want the most. Them opera stars on me. Milwaukee, here I come from Nashville, Tennessee.
gonna get on old turnpike and I'm gonna ride. I'm gonna leave this town till you decide which one you want the most, me or Jerry Lee. Milwaukee, here I come.